Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Today, we're here with Jeff Paeta with AIS Inc. Um, and could you just kick us off with a story, Jeff? Could you tell us one of your craziest real estate stories or transactions that you've ever faced? Wow. So I would, I would have to say when I bought my second house in uh, Western Springs, I, it was a newer construction and I liked it because I, it had an unfinished basement and I wanted to learn how to do that. And up until that time, I was just into computers. I knew nothing about construction. And so I wanted to figure that out. And over the next two years, um, I did a lot of the work myself. I went uh, deaf in, uh, in one year because when I was uh, putting the, the framing in and you have to use this uh, like little gun to fire nails into the foundation, didn't think about ear protection. Um, I, I uh, didn't have any plans, but it ended up turning out well. Um, I would say another crazy story is uh, when I was selling um, a, a, a rental after the closing, I didn't attend the closing. I just had an attorney attend for me. And a couple of days later, I was checking my bank account and I was expecting to see, you know, a deposit for, for the proceeds. And I didn't. And I emailed the attorney like, oh, the wire went out and come to find that a hacker had hacked into the uh, title company's email and on the day of the closing Dang. changed where the, uh, the fund should be wired to. So thankfully they were able to get the funds back. And, um, and, and so that, that had a, had a happy ending, but I mean, just like, you know, glad, glad I checked. And I guess that's one of the things of, um, you know, not personally attending the closing, um, which I, I still didn't attend closings after that, but I just more, was more diligent about checking my online banking to make sure that I was, I was getting the funds. Dang, that's um, so crazy. You know, I, I, I One thing I want to highlight right away that I think is fascinating is you bought a property because you wanted to learn how to fix a basement. Like so many people would be like, I don't know how to fix a basement. Therefore, I can't buy the property. Mm -hmm. You bought a property so you could learn a skill. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was, I was uh, 20. 21, 22 at the time, you know, I bought the first house I bought was a, uh, fixer uppers. It was, you know, original from the 1980s where yellow shag carpeting, uh, you know, one bathroom was pink with foil wallpaper on the bathroom was baby blue. The, the kitchen had linoleum with yellow appliances. And I spent, uh, about a year just gutting it and rehabbing it, which, um, you know, still living with my parents, it was, it was kind of a, a lot to be working during the day. And then, rehabbing at night and still having to go, you know, sleep somewhere else. And so I wanted to buy something where, you know, I didn't have to rehab the whole house where I could still live there, um, but then still have a project with uh, finishing the basement. So that was, that, that was fun. Got that out of my system. Um, you know, <laughs> so done smart. Construction since. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh -huh. Yeah. Don't blame you. It's a valuable skill set, but I mean, it's also something that I prefer to hire out. Um, I could do most of the things myself, but it's also like my time's more valuable spent elsewhere. That, that's true. It, it does. It does come in handy. I, you know, I had uh, someone that uh, had a hot water heater that went bad, and a plumber wanted to charge him three grand, 
And I said, well, I'll, I'll just go there and I'll, you know, fix it for you. And then it was a, a small retail location. I said, well, why do you have a 40 gallon water heater? You don't have a shower. You don't have a tub. We found, we found a, it was a, a four gallon water heater on Amazon for like a hundred bucks because mm-hmm. If you're not taking a shower and you're not taking a bath, you don't need a 40 gallon water heater. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, took 20 minutes to, to braise the pipes and put it in. And so it's, it's fun. It's fun every now and then to help people out. <laughs> I, and, and me, I, I like being able to find better solutions for problems. I think a lot of times people just have fixed ideas and they don't actually consider like, is what I'm doing, is it necessary? Or am I just doing so it just because true. that's I remember the way like growing up and hearing the story about the ham. I don't know if you've heard that story where they cut it off every Thanksgiving. And then finally someone asked, why in the hell are you cutting off the end of this ham? And then they had to go back and ask grandma. Well, grandma said, well, my pan wasn't big enough to fit the whole ham. So that's why I cut it off. But it carried down because nobody asked. So. That, that's true. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of that in, in life where, where people just accept things and they take things for granted. And I, I think it was, um, it was Peter mm. Thiel that first described himself as, as being heterodoxic, where you go against convention. And, and I've, I've adopted that, that term. And I, I, I like, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in, in school, I was a smart ass because I would challenge mm-hmm. everything. But, but then you, you get older, like it's, well, you're heterodoxic. And so I think it's important to, to understand yeah, totally. why people do what they do. That's cool. Um, I like the word you just used. I, I know Mark Twain was a big fan of that, too. He's like, if you see a lot of people running in one direction, go the other way. Um. <laughs> one of my favorite quotes, I think is falsely attributed to Mark Twain, was uh, I, I wrote mm-hmm. you a long letter because I didn't have time to write a short one. Where <laughs> the, whenever you see someone doing something the hard way or the long way because they didn't take the time to do it right or to do it, do it efficiently, uh, mm-hmm. that's... That's something I think about a lot. That and, and mm. uh, don't let the absence of perfection impede progress, because mm-hmm. so many people they 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 get they, they either get overwhelmed because they can't do it the way that they want to do it, uh, or they don't know how to to do it to completion, and so they just freeze up, or they don't start at all, or they get or they lose motivation. And yeah, that's so you know, every day just and That's one of the first mindset shifts that that I see, like in in our team from going from completely unproductive to productive is just lowering the threshold, lowering the standard from perfection to something lower than that. That's well within a tolerance range. Um, obviously you're coming from an experience background here. Um, let's talk about your, your first venture shift gig. Can we just kind of give a broad strokes overview of what that company was, what you provided and kind of the exit strategy for it? Sure. Well, shift gig was actually my, my second, uh, venture. And so if I, if I were to, to, uh, to, to take a step back, um, I graduated high school in, uh, in the spring of 2001. And that was the you know, height of the dot-com bubble. And I was, I remember day trading in, 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 uh, in class. And back then you, you, you couldn't lose. You, you'd come up with a, a symbol and you'd buy some stock. And then a couple of days later, you sell it, you, you make money. Um, and, I decided that I wanted to go to, to college. I would be the, I was going to be the first person in my family to go. Both my parents didn't. They, and then that fall of 2001, 
that's when uh, September 11th happened, dot-com bubble burst, the economy was in a recession, and um, I had to pay for college uh, you know, on, on my own. And I, I don't learn well in a classroom. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't really enjoying it as much. And um, after the first uh, semester, I decided to drop out. And, and I remember you know, telling my parents, I said, I, I'm going to try starting a company because I've got nothing to lose. And if I completely fail, I'm still broken with my parents, but I could always go back to school. And I remember thinking that back then that if I could survive in this economy, I could survive in any economy because, you know, when you're day trading in a bull market, well, everyone's a genius. <laughs> it's, it's, can you make money when the market's going down? Can you be successful when other people are not? That's, that's, that's when, that's when you learn. Um, and, and so, you know, I decided to first start in you know, professional services because that's an easy business to start where and I, and I was, 20 year old kid. How in the world did you get that insight? Was that, was that like people were telling you that, or you just like were intuitive to um, that? You know, that, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I, I would say that I have, you know, unconventional parents that, that, um, have, have taught me a lot and, um, you know, there's, there's things about my personality that are unconventional that I just look at things differently. I don't think that it's, it's not better. I, I, I would say like, like I would describe it that, uh, an optimist has a glass is half full A pessimist says mm -hmm. half empty. I'm an engineer. I say it's twice the size required, like, like to be able to look at something, mm -hmm. but not pass judgment that that helps to compartmentalize and helps you to get a, a better understanding. Um, but definitely my, my first mentors, um, I credit as really helping save me a lot of time and do not doing things the hard way. And, and that's something that I look to, to, you know, pay it forward because I remember in, when I was 18 and you know, some of my early mentors, I said, look, I, I have nothing that I can offer you. I, you know, I, I, I appreciate this. And then, you know, several of them said to Jeff, like, just pay it forward. That's, that's what I want. Like, you know, when you're in a position to help someone help them, but, uh, I, I, I can't speak enough about, you know, men, the value of mentors and having the, the right mentors because. You know, there, there's often that saying of like, oh, if you can go back in time, you know, 20 years, what would you what would you tell yourself? Well, you can do that today by finding the right mentor because they're you in 20 years. And so you don't need a time machine to, to do that. You just need a, a, a great mentor. And so um, for, for anyone that you know, doesn't have the life that they want, um, I would highly recommend finding the right mentors. And, and that is just without a doubt the truth i mean the, the quickest way to shorten your path to success is to find somebody that's already done what you wanted to do and to essentially help them and in return they will help you typically <laughs> if you lead with value you, you tend to get value back that, that, that's true i mean i think it's important to to never assume that you're the smartest person in in, in a room never assume that you're the first to to do something um, if, if I actually get uncomfortable, if I'm ever seeing that I'm the first to do something, because <laughs> the, the next thought is, well, is there a reason why no one else is doing this that I don't know about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you won't be the first person to make a screen door in a submarine, you know? Um, but, but just getting back to the story. So, you know, starting in, in professional services, it, it's, it's easier 
because you could you don't need like a lot of startup capital like you're not let's like compared to a manufacturing plant where you need to buy machines or compared to if you need to hire you know a lot of developers um so and i would consider you know doing it consulting or doing you know a lot of lawyers accounting even real estate it's all professional services and and when i look back at you know to my mindset back then i feel like i was raised by wolves and i i organically built an, an IT consulting company uh, over the next 10 years um, that I, I would describe it as using a real estate analogy is a, a imagine a 20 story building built by a, a handyman that didn't have any formal architecture experience. <laughs> oh, wow. And you were okay. to go look in that building. You're like, wait, why, why, why is there plumbing going through the electrical panel? Like why? Like they just, they just made it work. And, and that's um, my, you know, initial uh, run. And, you know, by, so by the time that was about, you know, 2010, um, I was in my, you know, my, my mid twenties and I was, I was, I was very happy with, with the success that, that we had. And I was not working a whole lot because I would joke that I was semi-retired and uh, started making new friends. That's when I moved from the suburbs to the city because I, I always, I always like being a, a, the shortest giant instead of the big fish in a small pond. And so I wanted to meet more and more people that were more successful that I can, that I can learn from. And, um, and that's when, you know, at the time I, I didn't have a plan. I just was just enjoying life and, and, and having fun. But then when Uber came to Chicago, uh, I remember thinking like, well, why, why Uber? Why, why is this successful? Why is this working? Because I remember a few years prior, there was an app called Halo, which I used a couple of times and then cabs picked up someone else and then, you know, it didn't work. And, and so I, I remember thinking like, well, why, why is this successful? And why did the other one not succeed when they're 99% the same? And then, you know, understanding how, how it's the nuances and how it's the differences and, and also how it wasn't until you know the, the iPhone came out in 2007 and the Android came out in 2008. And so it wasn't until 2010 that the majority of smartphone market share was really on two platforms. Because back in like I think 2006, there was 10 different phones. There was the, the Kyoceras, the, the Blackberries, the, the Palm Pilots, the Windows. And so you, you'd have to make 10 different apps and then also the devices were not powerful enough to run any type of sophisticated application. And then also the, the data speeds were too slow. And so it, it's a lot of it is timing in that, you know, the guy who founded Uber had nothing to do with the creation of iPhone or Android, but was one of the, because sometimes innovation is recognizing that because this dot now exists, I can connect it to these other dots. And this solution is now possible that previously wasn't possible. So that that's a lot of time what the timing of innovation is recognizing when something new exists or create adoption. Well, what does that enable that previously uh, couldn't be enabled? And so that got my mind spinning. And, um, and so I decided instead of having an easy life to uh, partner up with one of my, one of my best friends that was at a 20 year venture capital career. And so, well, let's, let's do Uber, but for staffing where instead of Walmart's 4,000 store managers, having to call a temp agency because they, at the time they were spending, uh, you know, a billion dollars a year on temp staffing. Mm. So why don't they, we make an app for that? 
And so we, we raised uh, $60 million in venture capital and, and uh, you know, built a company to that, that did that. And I would, I would describe it as growing a business organically out of cash flow. It's like running down the street. You're limited by your own oxygen. If you trip and fall, get back up, no big deal. Uh, when you're venture back, mm-hmm. it's like skiing down a double black diamond. <laughs> you're going a lot faster. And, and you know, if, if, if you crash, you're not going to get back up easily and you're probably going to be in the news. Like when you hear about WeWork and, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of startups like that, where, where, um, you know, it, 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 you're, you're, everything's moving a lot faster and, uh, it, it's, it's a lot harder because it's, it's hard enough to know the, that you're doing the right things yourself directly. But when you have people levels down for you and you have to evaluate, like from a derivative standpoint, are they doing the right things? Is it actually creating value? Does, does it make sense? And, and how far is the gap between where you're at and where you need to be to be viable? Um, and, and so that's where it's, I, I, I think it's still surprising when, you know, people give, you know, young 20 somethings without previous experience, millions of dollars and they're, they, you know, they don't do anything with it. And I remember one of my early mentors told me, and I didn't, I didn't fully understand what this meant for a couple of years. And, and, and he said to me, he said, Jeff, it's easier to make a million dollars than it is to spend it wisely. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what do you mean? It's not easy to make a million dollars, but it's even harder to spend a million dollars in a way that results in more than a million dollars. Like, or in, in other words, one of my other mentors told me, he said, hey, he was successful in the restaurant business. And he said, Jeff, he said, I'll tell you a sure way to make a million dollars in the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. So what's that? Said, Start with two. That's mm-hmm. so funny. <laughs> You're um, gonna lose a million bucks. <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 interesting with um, with with innovation how people tend to be afraid of change, and I think it's important to understand what that change means. And and so you know along the lines of real estate, it, when when I when I look back to you know, two thousand four two thousand five, the the primary value of a lot of realtors was the gatekeeper of information. Like when I was buying my first home, you know I had. I was helpless. I was like a baby bird, you know, just with my mouth open, waiting for the, the realtor to, to spoon feed me information. And then when, you know, Google and, and Zillow came out, I, I remember a lot of realtors that they, they thought that, oh, well, you know, that's the end. That's the end of the industry. But if you look today, there's more realtors today than there were 20 years ago and they're making more money today. Well, so Google didn't kill the industry. But it, what, what that shows is, is that like, I think I think that real estate is is a good example of an industry that has evolved where or 15 years ago it was like you know google was going to kill us all and it, was, and it was the apocalypse but but now the real, real estate market has adapted to where it's not just being the spoon feeder of information it's being the curator of, of mm-hmm. information and, and finding different ways of, of adding value and and i think that that like especially in industries that that Innovation doesn't stop. And so recognizing, you know, what is the next trend and what does that mean in terms of how the value that you add? Because you know, there's some things that will always be true and that people will, will always be lazy. And that if you could find a better way to enable your customers to be lazy, then like 
you're, you're not going to have a shortage of, of, of things to do. Um, and and it, it's, it, it's, it's looking at, it's looking at that, but then also, I guess, so in any, any trend that really catches on with consumers, it's only a matter of time before businesses will adopt it. And so that's where if you're, if you're doing B2B, it's easy to spot the trends because you look at what's popular with consumers. So for example, when you look at like the Amazonification and the Uberification of a lot of consumer behavior, where consumers, they like using the Uber app to just hit a button instead of having to call a cab company or having to you know, wait on the corner. They want, that, they want that greater choice, that greater convenience, that greater flexibility. And the same thing with Amazon vacation where, you know, everyone expects free shipping. They want it delivered tomorrow. They expect all this choice. They, 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 they expect all of that. Well, so now when they're doing business with, with other types of businesses, they expect that those same conveniences, the same flexibility, the same choices that they would get from Amazon or Uber. And so it's easy for, for businesses to, to, you know, look at those trends, but, but now then the hard part is, well, what are you going to do about it? And, and that's where I think a lot of a lot of businesses are, are, are facing challenges now. And that's going to be the next. Well, totally. And some industries are very hard to, you know, to provide the level of service that an Amazon is like it's it's pretty remarkable that they're able to do what they do, like to deliver that many products that quickly at that scale, at that cost. You know, and obviously it, it plays out well, but a lot of companies go through a lot of heartache, disaster, and they don't go down the black diamond well trying to go that path. That, that, that's true. That's true. I, I, I think that that manufacturing in the U.S. is, is a good example for many reasons, um, in particular because of, like, you know, globalization really started 20 years ago after China joined the WTO in 2001. And, and so about 20 to 15 years ago, a lot of manufacturers in the U.S. You know, really had to become more efficient or go out of business. And so they, they already went through that change. And so it's it's other industries that are now starting to to face that that those some of those same challenges and so i think that that when someone's looking for mentors uh people in the manufacturing industry are are, are good mentors for um really how, how how to how to plan for that because there's no one right answer in terms of how much change do you do how how quickly and and you know what do you use to fund it? Do you, do you get debt? Do you raise investors? Um, do, do you use your own money? The, those questions like that that have more than one right answer are the best for mentors because you're, you're not yeah. going to find the right answer. Compounded by the fact that we've had COVID and we have all of these, you know, health situations, political change situations from the, the swaying of the administrations to where you're getting red light, green light, red light, green light. It's it's wild. And I mean, the decisions we make in professional services are significantly easier to modify than decisions where you're manufacturing a very expensive product that has plant operations and equipment that has to be tooled. And that's crazy. Uh, I, 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 I think, I think that they're different. Um, I don't know that one's better or worse than others because with, with manufacturing, it's true that it's much more capital intensive, but but it's also much more uh, predictable than when mm. your your product is is people and, and it could be like herding cats. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and um, the the leadership it's more of a, a leadership challenge. 
um, especially with with you know, different generations of, of, of people, in, in you know giving them a, a reason why, um, and and, and um, you know I would say my my understanding now is is that it's each industry is different in understanding what what the specific challenges are, but. I don't know that there's anyone that's totally. Yeah, I hear you on that. Like just even comparing the real estate agent to the real estate investor, the agent is more of the, you know, the friendly go there, look at the paint colors. And I hear so many investors say, I'm, I'm so glad to be out of being an agent because I no longer have to care what the color of the paint is. And they're they're dealing a lot more with the capital intensive flip part of the process, whereas the agent doesn't have any of their own money out. They just literally are you know showing the houses or whatnot. And yet you find people on both sides of the aisle that are extremely happy. Mm -hmm. I, I, I agree with that. And, and I, I think that that's a question that, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, they don't ponder is, you know, what, what, mm. how do you want to add value and, and what do you want to be and, and, and what do you want to do? And what does that look like at your, your, your highest and best achievement? And, and so, and I would categorize that where if if you're a great connector and you know you know high net worth a lot of high net worth individuals and you can you can interact with them and and if you have a low risk tolerance well then you're you're a multi million dollar listing agent where you can make make more than enough money but if if maybe you know connections is not the, the best thing and you're okay with risk and you understand risk and and that you have you know credibility and, and, and credit well then you know makes sense on, on the investor side I, I i see a lot of people that they dabble in different things but they they don't tend to find you know what is that one thing that that they're best at or what do they want to achieve and that i think that's that's also something a mentor can, can help with because they can provide a you know an outside perspective and say okay you know here's here's what i'm seeing and and um you know if if, if you're if you're you know, below average height, you know, mm -hmm. basketball may not be the best. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and, but then also knowing, you know, where you, if you go to a playground where you see kids playing basketball, they have a somewhat of a sense of their odds of joining the NBA that there's only, you know, what, 800 NBA players. But sometimes when you, when you talk to entrepreneurs, like it's, it's kind of backwards. They think that they all have a real shot of being on Shark Tank, like, you know, mm -hmm. being, being one of those those investors. And so I think it's important to know, um, you know, what, what your odds are, what, what, what you're up against and, and what's, what's realistic. And if you're going to achieve that to, to make sure that it's aligned with, with what your, your skills and what your personality is. So this is a real natural transition into a book that you're working on. Um, so the asshole within, um, you and Matt are going to have a ton of fun talking about this, so I wanted to introduce it. Could you tell me a little bit about that concept, and maybe you and Matt could kind of riff on personality for a little bit, because I'm sure you guys can have a very good conversation there. Sure, sure. So I, I, for the last 20 years, I've, I've been collecting just notes of everything that I've learned about people, and in, in particular, when when I was starting out and I wanted to understand people and I wanted to understand how to be a leader. And I, and I became a student of history and reading about leaders throughout history, both you know, political and, and religious and, and, and business um, in, in that, you know, finding that there's different times of different types of leadership um, can, can, can come in handy, but then also understanding, you know, 
why don't people succeed or why don't people have what they want and understanding that, well, some people, they, they're, they're, you know, happiness does not mean a state of mind for them. Happiness is just from, from moment to moment. But then also, you know, when people view themselves, they tend to view what they're able to do, but their performance viewed by others tends to be what they're willing to do. And there's a gap between what someone is willing to do and what someone is able to do mm-hmm. and, and being able to articulate and to explain the, uh, th- that gap. Um, but, but also, you know, no, recognizing that, that, you know, failure is often just a limit of what, what someone was willing or able to do wasn't enough to succeed. And, and failure is just a measure of, of, of that limit and, and how, you know, oftentimes when people hit rock bottom, that, that is just a, a, a measure of the point at which not changing becomes just as painful as changing because people tend to do what hurts the least and do what's painful, less painful when presented with two options. And, and so if, if, you know, if, if, if someone wants to lose weight and you ask them why they said, well, I don't like being fat. And, but they really like, you know, eat, eating a certain thing. It's painful for them to change that diet. And, and especially understanding that there's, there's a feedback loop between your gut bacteria and your brain so that the, the bacteria is sending hormones to your brain to make you eat that so that you're up, you're, you're not only fighting your own brain, but you're also fighting chemistry. But part of like, you know, I think it's Ben Franklin that said a problem well defined is nearly solved. And so I, I've spent a lot of time trying to define what it is, trying to understand people. And so the, the, the notes that I've compiled from all of that, I think, I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a different collection of probably we'll say a dozen different books that, that I've read, but then also things that I haven't read anywhere else, but I've observed. And so I'm, I'm planning on in the next, uh, next two years to uh, get it to a point where I, get, I can have a ghostwriter uh, you know, put it all together. So Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between 5 and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us, and let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. The sense I get, and this might not be accurate, but the sense I get is we're similar. And so I'm, I'm a math major. Sounds like you're coming from a more or less engineering mindset. So nerdy was, would not be far stretched from a description of me growing up. And what I found is as I got into real estate, it's a people business. 
and then you become a team leader and you have to grow the team. You have to learn about leadership. You're obviously were thrust into a leadership role building these companies and you studied leadership and personality. Like, did you get a sense of that you studied that to help with where maybe the engineering mind lacks? I felt like I had to create a filter for myself. Like I understand ideas a lot better than I understand people and emotions. And so I went in search of personality studies so I could understand people from an analytical way because I didn't necessarily understand them emotionally like most people might. I, I, I would say that, that it was more of like trying to understand better what I was seeing. So, so for example, when, when I was first starting out and I would meet a lot of small business owners, I would notice that a lot of them were, you know, kind of jaded. And, and, and I would ask them, I'm like, why? And, and the, the consistent theme I learned is that when you're in business, you, you inevitably you get screwed over. Mm-hmm. And, and after getting you know, screwed over for you know, decades, they, they tend to you know, get, get a thick skin or tend to you know, trust people or enjoy you know, people, people less. And, and so you know, one of the things I decided early on is that I will never stop believing in people. I will never stop giving people a chance. I expect that, that I, will, I will get screwed over. But, but, but understanding, though, the, what, what, that, what that means. In, so, you know, for example, like a question people ask me is, you know, do I forgive people? And I said, well, I always pay attention to intentions and not actions. And that if someone harms me, but they did not intend to, and it's clear to me, well, no harm, no foul. But if, if it's clear that someone intended to harm me, well, that's a character flaw and you can't fix that. And one of the, one of the very few benefits about getting older is that you get to collect more good people in your life. And, and anyone with bad intentions, you just got to get them out of your life. And I think that that some people that they have, they struggle with life because they have people with bad intentions in their lives. And for whatever reason, they're not able to get, get them out. But there's, you know, you know, there's going to be eight, eight billionth person, eight billionth humans going to be born next month. So you, you can't, you can't know them all. You can't be friends with them all. So if someone has bad intentions, well, you, you, you get rid of them. And, and, but understanding that and, but then also um, a lot of aspects of leadership are, are, are counter to, to human nature and, and human nature is like what your, your gut is. So what, what you feel and, and, you know, some examples are, are you know, customers expect you to be fair to them. Employees expect you to be fair to them, but, but not necessarily in return. And so you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with taking care of other people, but they you know, necessarily don't have to have that same expectation for, for you in return. And, and so that's where it's, it's being, being tough mentally, but without having such a thick skin that you, that you lose feeling. So that, that's where I think is the challenge to have that balance to where you're resilient. And, and that's something that, that I've learned to pay more attention to as I get older is to tell when someone is mentally strong, because you can see someone walking down the street and you can tell if they're physically strong. Like you, you can tell if you see, you know, a UFC fighter and, and if you punch them in the stomach, they're probably not going to react. Like, like, but you cannot, t- it's harder to tell if someone is mentally strong. And, and that's, I think that's something that, that's important, especially when you look for mentors or, or, or partners. Uh, you want someone that that is mentally strong, and so and, and so knowing also 
some of the people that are not so that when there's a situation, well, you, it helps you be more sensitive to people that are not mentally strong um, because otherwise, because something's not bothering you, then, you know, I, just like I saw this article um, about how Elon Musk's uh, uh, child is disowning him. And, and, and I, what I said to some of my coworkers, I said, I said, you know, there is a human that is alive today that the biggest problem in their life is that their dad is the richest man in the world. Like, just contemplate that for a second. Mm-hmm. That There is a human alive that that is their biggest problem. Mm-hmm. Now, how's your day going? Right? <laughs> yeah. Not as well as theirs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how many people would, 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 if the biggest problem in your life is that your dad is the richest man in the world, that, that, is, that is their biggest problem. Yeah. It kind of puts everything in perspective. Totally. And there's so many reasons that could be true. I mean, from the fact that, you know, maybe they wanted a particular relationship with their dad and couldn't have it, you know, due to et cetera, et cetera. It, it probably goes into a lot of things I'm sure you deal with in building a staffing company, which is the variety of motivations that people have in life and the things that they need and what makes them happy. And you kind of touched on that a little bit about, you know, some people have states of happiness and some people have happiness is just the moments of happiness they have periodically. So I'd love you to touch a little bit deeper on that. Sure. I, I, I think that, that it's important to, to understand how you're solving the problem, especially those that are more, uh, more complex, uh, especially usually involving people. So, so specifically when, before starting Shifty, when I was trying to figure out like what, how we should approach it and I would use Uber a lot. I would notice that that the typical Uber driver otherwise wouldn't be interested in being a cab driver if Uber didn't exist. I would actually ask for, a couple, for the first couple of years, I would ask every Uber driver, said, if Uber didn't exist, would you drive a cab? Most said no. And and I also noticed that the Uber drivers, they were not unskilled people. They were non-specifically skilled people. Like I would sometimes get a college kid. I would sometimes get, you know, get someone that, that, you know, had a professional job and, and just you know, wanted some time away from the family. And, and so that's what I realized is that it's not, it's not unskilled. It's, it's non-specifically skilled. And when with shift gig, we were focusing on, on, you know, if you look at the whole U S temp staffing market, it's about $120 billion and, and 30 billion of that is considered, you know, light industrial temp staffing, which, which is, is the lower wages. So, so the, the retail, um, the, the hotels, the, the catering, and it's 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 while it's typically served by by people that that are are less skilled, it's it's also can be handled by people that are non-specifically skilled. Just like with Uber, like it's driving a car. It's 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 a it's a non-specific skill. And what the one of the interesting things that we found is that areas that there was t- traditional structural challenges in the staffing industry. So, for example, uh, with um, stadiums where they need a lot of bartenders and and it's, they're cashiers but they also have to be bar, bartenders because they get alcohol in the stadiums now for what the temp agencies pay you you don't get people that are, are bartending certified that are, are going to want to do that. that that's something that's, that's typically very hard but what we found is by being able to provide the flexibility where you know like with with uber drive when you want where you want as little as much as you want and and so, you know, our, our whole pitch was, well, okay, it's just like Uber, but without the car. 
if, if you want to do something other than driving. And we found that that senior citizens would were one of the biggest demographics picking up those bartending shifts at stadiums because for them it was a night out like they they enjoyed it mm-hmm. where they get to see a game and, and and hang out and they wouldn't want to work in a loud bar where whereas you know the 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 younger bartenders they wouldn't want to work in a stadium and make you know a fraction of what they would make it at, at one of the one of the major bars and so by being able to provide uh, flexibility, that that's something that where you can you can either expand the supply side or expand the demand side, because th- that's what we have to think about when approaching. Like marketplaces are extremely hard; they 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 are very hard. And I think that one thing that's important is to know that the paths that companies have followed to get to where they're at, those paths no longer exist. So, for example, look at Craigslist. Craigslist could, if, if Craigslist started today, it would not have become Craigslist. Mm-hmm. Like it, 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 it's all, it's also about timing. So the way that, that marketplaces become successful today are not going to be the way that they become successful mm-hmm. tomorrow. And so it's, it's constantly looking at that, but, but also the fundamentals of like, what are you solving? Are you expanding the supply? Are you expanding the demand? Are you allowing for, for lower friction on how both sides connect? Like how, how are you, how are you adding value where, uh, you know, people, um, when people struggle to answer that, that's, um, that, that's, that's usually an indicator. I remember when Bitcoin came out you know, 12 years ago and I, I said, well, what, what is this going to be used for? Like mm-hmm. what, what problem is it solving that, that, you know, that visa has, and then I would hear. Yeah, for they say, oh, give it a couple of years, and then you know, ten years went by, and we look, okay, it's 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 not used for any legal purposes, like other than speculation and gambling. Like, what 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 does it need? And then and then they come up with that with NFTs. I, I I think one of the root causes of it is that the 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 macroeconomic events that are occurring when a generation is coming of age tend to tend to define the predominant mindset of that generation. So if you look at our grandparents that you know during the depression where very, very frugal, very, you know, you know, finish your food. And then you know, when, when, when I was coming of age in, in the 90s, more more brands, you know, all the kids in high school were wearing Abercrombie and Fitch and all the, the logo wear. And then you think about like the, 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 the younger millennials and the Zoomers today, where they were coming of age during the financial crisis. So, so they don't trust big banks. They, 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 don't, they don't trust big, big companies. So that's why they don't, they don't like the brands. They, they don't care about owning homes or owning cars like that. That sounds important. So but what, what do they trust? Well, big cryptocurrencies and NFTs, it's literally nothing. They, and, and they're, they're okay with that. Like they don't, they don't, you know, not going to fall for Bernie Madoff again, but they're betting on literally nothing. And I, I think that's, a, that's, that's a symptom of, of, you know, the, the, what was, the events that were happening at, at that time, and so it's it's also something to think about now, with with inflation, and what is that in, in, impressing on for anyone that has children that are, are coming of age uh, around this time. Um, you mentioned timing and stuff like that so many other times. So I mean, I wanted to get into your other book idea. Um, strategy is the art of creating luck, which I think you've kind of dipped into a little bit already a couple times. But we could could we. Um, dive deeper into that concept. Sure, sure, absolutely. And so, you know, the the, the title the title of the book 
is that anytime that you know someone would say that I was lucky on anything, it's because they didn't understand that that it was intentional, that that I had a strategy. And 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 by the way, the easiest way to find if something is unique is actually by if you Google something and there's no results, then it's most likely unique. Uh, you don't have to you know go to do a, do a mm-hmm. patent or trademark search anymore. Um, but you know, really, really to 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 share, and and I, I intend to use it as as a, a reference in that for you know the people that that I mentor, and then I expect that as I get older, I'm going to mentor more people. Uh, I I I want to make sure that I'm not forgetting anything, and and so by having it you know structured in in a book, it's it's going to be a way for me to help help share what I, everything that I've learned and the lessons that I've, I've gone through. Um, with with more people, um, because I, I think that, that that there's a lot of there's a lot of fluff out there, and there's a lot of the, the right things, and so you know, I, that's why I decided to start you know putting it all together. Yeah, and I I really like that because essentially I think a lot of people amateurs will call them look at people who are doing things on an expert level, and it just looks easy, and so therefore. To them, it seems like this is easy, but I just know being on the sales side, you could have a great salesperson that's navigating a call with such excellence that one word, one tonality difference at any point in that call could shift that conversation in a completely different direction. And it would look nothing like the outcome that the expert had. So, well, you know, you know they, say, they say that, that if you truly understand something, you can explain it simply. Mm-hmm. If you're truly good at something, then you make it look easy, and and, and that's why I say never. Uh, if, if if you go to the doctor and he struggles to explain what's wrong with you, get a second opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, and, that's such a good and, point. And, and and that's why there's a lot of value in asking someone. You know, explain explain this to me as you would a child, because if they can't explain it simply, then they that's a sign that they don't really understand it. Uh, especially when when I talk to to founders that are you know, entrepreneurs, executives, that they're trying to hire people that do things that they don't know how to do. I said, well, you know, ask them how to explain something simply and then ask them questions that are the hardest to fake. Like, like what, what, what's the most interesting thing that they learn about, you know, a particular topic or, or what about it are they most curious of? It's really hard to fake curiosity. It's hard, it's hard to fake, it's hard to fake interest. Um, someone, or otherwise they can throw out a, a lot of buzzwords, mm-hmm. but you know, one of the other interesting things that, um, on, on the personality side is, is I remember this documentary I, I saw a while ago about the, um, the CIA's top, uh, uh, profiler. And, and he said that your, your genes are the gun, your upbringing loads it and your life experience is what pulls the trigger. And especially during, during the pandemic, especially in Chicago, is and that, that's also an explanation why you know there, there's been you know serial killers that had an identical twin that was a normal human because even though they had the same genes, same upbringing, they had a different life experience that didn't cause them to pull the trigger and become a serial killer as well. But I would tell you know people that I, I know and people like also I said whenever you're interacting with people, you don't know if they have a loaded gun literally or figuratively. Don't be the life experience that makes them pull the trigger. Like, <laughs> and, and, but also in, in dealing with people, it, like especially if you're having a, a less than positive interaction with someone, 
if, if your baseline assumption is that they're going through some type of struggle that you don't know about, mm-hmm. that, that, that helps to provide you know, pr- perspective, that, that the, the less than positive way that they're interacting with you, you know, has nothing to do with you in o- almost all the cases. And, and you know, sometimes it tell people, well, you know, don't take it personally, just take it publicly and you know, post about it on Facebook. <laughs> there you go. Don't take it personally, take it publicly. That's funny. That's cool. Yeah, no, those are some great insights. I mean, particularly staying empathetic, you know, that's, that's good. I know, um, I'm not sure if you've read some of the neuroscience books out there by, you know, Joe Dispenza, Caroline Leaf, and there's a ton of others that talk about the impacts that I think kind of goes to what you're saying of essentially where some of the decisions we make, even the food we eat sometimes causes gene, you know, is it upregulation and downregulation? I'm gonna get that wrong, because I'm not a neuroscientist, but um, which, which actually allows certain things to happen and not happen. I remember, um, watching a Tom Bilyeu interview with, uh, I think it's Dr. Amen. And he was talking about a guy who was like a suicidal, like wanted to shoot himself. And he did an elimination diet with the person started with water, started working back up. And the second the guy started eating corn again, he would have visualizations of blowing his brains out and then got rid of that. And then all of a sudden he was good. Like it's, it's wild how much plays in the human psychology and what can affect things. Oh, absolutely. I, I want some of the, the, the contradictions with, with human nature, uh, like there's so many of them and, and, and it fascinates me. It's just, just like when, when, when you exercise and you work out, your body gets stronger, which like if you, the more you drive your car, it doesn't get better. <laughs> right. Uh, but, but then also like, I, I remember when I was when I was growing up, and my my neighbor was um, this older guy, older Vietnamese guy, and he'd always walk around barefoot. He was the happiest person that I met, and I was I think I was like you know twelve or thirteen, and, and I remember asking him, I said, you know, Mister Lee, how how did you come to America? And you know, it was an instant question, and and I heard one of the most shocking stories that my twelve year old mind heard about. Mm-hmm what happened in, 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 in Vietnam and, and what was a, I, I struggled the process was how is it that the person that told me these horrific stories is the happiest person that I know? Like, how does that, how does that make sense? And, and even when I would, you know, read stories about the the you know the Russian gulags about how people were, were beaten and tortured and starved for doing nothing, and and they would fight to survive, and then you hear rich kids of Instagram that that you know, post something wrong and then they commit suicide, and, and and I guess it to boil it all down, it made me realize that for a lot of times, like happiness and satisfaction and the value of life is just the difference between your current situation and then the worst things you've ever been through, and and. The bigger that gap, the more satisfying it is. Because mm-hmm. people that have been through the most hardship, they tend to value life the most. And and it's the people that um, have, the, the, I would say the, the, the people that have been through the hardest stuff are the happy, happier people I know. And and the people that, that tend to be unhappy have had really easy lives. And and they don't like when I tell them, well, maybe you just need to suffer more. <laughs> and, and I, I remember back in, um, I think it was, uh, it was 2011 when I was, I was, I was stressed and, and uh, you know, starting shift gig and, and, and um, 
I wanted some perspective. And at the time there was, you know, a week before the Chicago marathon and, um, you know, one of my friends was doing it. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it with you. <laughs> and they, they thought it was a joke, but, but that day I, I decided to run it with them. And I, I wanted to prove to myself that all pain is mental and, and that you can, you can push your body to do things if, if you, because if you're not going to allow yourself to be limited by what you're willing to do, that it's easy to say and it's hard to do. I said, I, I want to see, can I, am I able to do it? Is my body able to do it? And I finished in, in just over five hours and I, I couldn't run for, for several months after that, but <laughs> even after I, even after I finished, I said, for perspective to people, I said, running a marathon without training is easier than growing a company because mm. not a lot of people would go run a marathon without training. That is extremely, but a lot of people start a business, but, but, but <laughs> just from my perspective, it's easier mentally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and next year when uh, I, I turn 40 next year and I, I, I'm going to do an Ironman um, right around my 40th birthday and, and I, I'm training somewhat for it because I think that, that doing an Ironman when you're 40 is, is a lot more, uh, it's, it's different than, than running a marathon when you're, uh, you know, 28. Mm -hmm. um, totally. But, but, I, but I expect it to be, you know, 13 hours of the worst hell that and the worst pain that I've been through. I, I expect it to be 13 hours of pain because I understand, I learned from people older, older than me that getting old is not for the weak of heart. Mm -hmm. That what you take for granted with your energy, with your body, with your health, um, that, that's, that starts to, to, to decline. And so I am looking forward to having that perspective of that experience so that no matter what I'm faced with, I'll be able to deal with it calmly because everyone has a, a there's a gap between your mental state where it is now and the state at which you get triggered emotionally. And the, the problem is whenever you get emotionally triggered, you're not able to make the quality of decisions that you'd be able to make otherwise. And, and the quality of your life is a direct result of the quality of decisions you make. And when I tell that to people, they, they sometimes they take it as a slight. They're like, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm just saying that it is what it is. Mm -hmm. But so by, by having greater mental strength, that widens the gap of, of how much you can take on and how much you can tolerate and still be calm. Because it, it, you know, while it's required for leadership, it, it, it's, it's effective in all points of life. And that the people that are, that are the strongest mentally, you can hit them with almost anything and, and they'll be cool headed and they'll be able to think objectively because when, once you get, once you get emotionally triggered, that, that is the time when you should not be making any decisions at all. Well, then you can make decisions based on what's best empirically, not based on how you feel, which just creates such a different outcome, you know, because our, our feelings are usually generally, you know, shrouded in, trying to help us, you know, stay safe and comfortable, not in being our best version of ourselves. That's true. That's true. It, it's, it's hard to hack your feelings. It's, it's hard to hack your brain, but, but understanding is the first step towards it. So mm -hmm. I, I would say the most powerful brain hack that I've learned is, is imprinting. And what, what that means is that the, the more that you think about something, the more you become attached to it. And so it's, it's also like the basis of, of Stockholm syndrome or mm -hmm. where 
where, you know, like an example would be is, you know, take someone that's a genuinely good person and then they're in a relationship with, with a, a bad person with bad intentions. And, and then you, you know, we all, we all know, we all know examples of that and they wonder, okay, why, why, why don't they leave? Well, what the reason why is that the good person is trying to understand what did they do to cause the bad person to be mean to them. And because there's nothing that they did, their mind just keeps spinning over and over and over. And because they're thinking about it constantly, they don't realize that they're becoming attached to it. And that and that mm-hmm. they're they're not in love with that person, but they're attached to that because of how much time their brain was thinking about it. And so if if you identify what what are things that you want your brain to become attached to and just find ways to keep thinking about it, and then you don't, then you don't have to try. It's also the same reason why when someone starts a new workout routine, the first day is always the hardest mm-hmm. because you get more, you get attached to it. But it's really, it, it's really as simple as the more you think about something, doesn't matter why it doesn't, it also doesn't matter if it's a positive feeling or a negative feeling. Mm-hmm. It's just the fact that, that you're thinking about it. Then it's, it's like wearing tracks in the carpet. Like your, your mind gets, gets worn in and you get more attached to it. But that that's, that's where, there's, there's, there's changes that I had to make, um, that I, I wanted to, uh, to, to be able to be more effective in some areas that I was weak in. And it was through imprinting that I was able to, to change how I would think. That's phenomenal. I think that is the best description of codependency I've ever heard or really why it happens mm-hmm. or why it occurs. Cause I think you hit it spot on. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, cool. So, Jeff, I mean, obviously, it's been like an hour already. What are you currently working on building? So, uh, when when I, this was back in in twenty sixteen, when it was five years in the chip gig, and we raised sixty million venture capital, we had uh, three hundred fifty corporate employees. We had you know, tens of thousands of people working every day. I had the executive team almost built out and I was starting to do some soul searching, thinking about what, what do I want to do next in my life? Cause at the time I was, I was 35 and I said, okay, I want to, you know, do I want to retire? No, I don't want to sit on a beach and do nothing. I said, I, I want to, I want to do one more, one more time. I want to do one more thing. And, and so I started to think about, you know, what, and what, what I saw was that, Facebook and Google and, and Amazon, you know, the, the biggest data centers in the world, they're all running on open source. And I thought, well, this is, this is interesting. I, what if we were able to, to leverage that open source for small, medium businesses that, you know, were struggling to, to pay for their IT expenses, to, uh, to manage their vulnerabilities because small, medium businesses, they have growing IT needs that traditionally enterprise companies would have. And the the costs are, are were continuing to, to raise for them. And I looked at, at, at cybersecurity where it continued to be a, a growing threat. And and so I I, I decided to to as a concept take enterprise open source software and make it available for small and medium businesses. And the decision at the time was well do I start a new company? Or do I incubate it within my first company that I still own? Because when I when I started shifting, I didn't sell it because it was I, I owned it and it was profitable. 
and I decided to, to incubate within my first company because one of the lessons that I learned with, with venture back companies is that, you know, you hear about the funding announcements, but you don't hear about the investment terms. You don't hear about the dilution and raising money very early is very dilutive. And so I knew that I didn't want to raise money early. I wanted to self fund um, on the early on. And so it, over the last five years, I, I've been focusing on that where taking enterprise open source and, and selling it to small medium businesses and providing it as, as a managed service. And one of the interesting lessons that, that I applied along the way is, is understanding of coopetition in that when, when you're in an industry where there's very large players, there, there are often opportunities as, as a small player to, to, to work with them. And, and I, I would credit you know, one of my mentors early on at, at Shiftgate, he was a, a, a guy, a Chicago guy that, that uh, started Field Glass and sold it you know, to SAP, where he said that the largest staffing companies in the world were each other's biggest customers, biggest competitors, and biggest vendors all at the same time. And, and, and when I, I, I was figuring out a strategy, well, how do I, how do I provide the service to you know, small, medium businesses across the country very fast? Looking at it in, in the IT reselling space, you know, CDW is the largest IT reseller. They're Fortune 500 with you know, 22 billion in revenue. So we'll have them resell it to their customers. And I had some employees who said, well, but, but they compete with us. I said, well, when, when you, with any company, big ships don't turn fast. And so oftentimes there, there's, there's, there's deal sizes that are too small to be viable for a big company that are great for you. But then also anything that is innovative or anything that is new, it takes big companies time. So if you focus on, on either being more efficient at smaller deals, which for a Fortune 500 company, they don't want to touch anything under a million a year. Uh, 100%. And also something for, for when, when there's there's innovative solutions or new solutions that, that because you can move faster because big companies tend to buy and they don't innovate where, where smaller companies they innovate and then big companies buy the companies that, that innovate. And so, yeah, because R&D, yeah, you essentially become an R&D arm for them de facto. So they pay multiples to you for taking the risk. And so instead of having 20 or 30 failures, they buy one success at 10 times the cost. Well, well not, not only that, I think where, where, where a lot of big companies, they, 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 they get stuck because their, their lawyers and their legal departments, they are not willing to or able to take the levels of risk because they have too much to lose. Whereas a startup company can take a, a lot of risk because they have a lot less to lose. And then once the idea is proven out and the risk is known, that's when the big companies buy it. So I think that that's what that's, mm. I would say one of the major challenges of innovation for larger companies is, is also from the risk side. Totally. Yeah. How cool. I just remember being exposed to that concept maybe five, six years ago. I have a buddy, we were talking and talking about ideas and he was kind of a somewhat a, uh, connected to their accounting department. He goes, Matt, do you know we won't even try an idea if it doesn't change the needle by $2 million? And it was like, dang. Um, yeah, so that's super cool. Uh, here you go. So 
Yeah. And I mean, it's helpful to know that, like, I mean, if you get Intel, even on that too, like you talk about the open source, like you get an Intel, like in a space, a company's not going to innovate inside of 10 million or inside, like, you know, what sort of easy market cap you can go grab because they're not competing with you in that space. Oh, right. Right. Well, and, and there's also no shortage of ideas and ideas are, are cheap and worthless. It's, it's execution. That's hard. Mm -hmm. And, and any, any time that I, I encounter someone, they say, Oh, well, I have this idea, but, but I'm hesitant to tell you because you know, you might steal it. I said, well, well, first of all, I have no shortage of ideas, but I have a shortage of time. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and companies don't fail because of usually because of a bad idea. It's because of bad execution. E execution is, is everything. And, and oftentimes the ideas are, are, are the nuance and like even in big companies fail. Like, like look at, look at the Amazon fire phone where Amazon spends a billion dollars on that. And, and then where I give them credit is after the fire phone was a huge failure. Someone said, well, why don't we take one feature, which is a cheap Siri clone from the phone and make a separate device that just does that one thing. And that was Alexa. And like, like that'll, that'll, that, it's kind of counter to, to innovation that that's like a phone failing and said, okay, we're going to make a clock. We're going to take that one. Like, it, 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 sometimes innovation go, goes goes backwards, but but also sometimes innovation is not is not done. I remember a couple of years ago, I would say, "Well, no one's going to make another photo sharing app like that." That's been done, and then TikTok comes around, <laughs> and 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 they they subvert you know YouTube and, and and Instagram, and so nothing is ever done. And and just because something big fails doesn't mean a small piece of it could could make sense, but. I think the most important thing is to understand the lessons of like, why did it happen? Like, why did the fire phone fail? And why is Alexa successful? Like un understanding those, those reasons, because one thing is for sure is those are not the last of those types of examples. Mm -hmm. On top of the fact too, that kind of tying back to something you said earlier is that there's mechanisms that sometimes become enabled that allow something to succeed. And sometimes they're technological things, as you mentioned. And sometimes like in TikTok, mm -hmm. it could be cultural. Like there's a social cultural allowance now for certain types of activities that maybe would have been viewed psychologically as primitive or whatever that now is well, completely acceptable. Well, to the, new the, generation. Biggest, the biggest thing with TikTok is that I, I saw it always as an anti-social network because with, with traditional mm -hmm. social networks, mm -hmm. you would find content based on your relationships instead of based on topics. And so the people, the people that I know that are not on social media are on TikTok. And I'm like, oh, it's an anti-social network. <laughs> so, so, so maybe that's another trend is, is that when you see something that take that is taking off, we'll find a way to do the opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, man. I just, it's really fun to have, have you on because obviously a lot of our conversations are surrounding real estate agents and investing. So to have the entrepreneurial side is, is well, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of similarities I would say in, in that it's important to be patient. It's important to, to, to not be greedy. Um, I, I always would look at real estate investing as like gambling in extremely slow motion. It, it, it's, it's obvious when is a good time to leave the casino, which is when, when you're up, mm -hmm. uh, not always as obvious. To, well, well, I guess it can be obvious when it's a good time to get in, but because people could get greedy, they ride the market down and they, they don't have the, the funds to, to, to get in when everything is down. So that's also to the point of doing the opposite of other people. But um, 
I, I think that that with most types of, of investing, it's to to understand, um, you know, what 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 is your true advantage and, and how do you maximize that? Like when, you know, when I go to a casino, I, I, I know that that the odds are closest to 50 50 in blackjack, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to drink. I'm, I'm going to stay focused and I'm not going to I'm not going to leave till I lose because it, it when the odds are close to 50 50, that means that, that your your money is up is up and down and it just goes up up over time. But you don't leave when you're down. You don't leave. You don't sell for a loss. And so you have you have to be you have to be committed. You have to to believe in yourself. But you also have to know you, you have to know what you're up against and and focus on on a game of inches and don't make the, the, the big bets. Which leads me to a question. So when you're playing blackjack, do you kind of use a progressive betting system? So I, I, I do use a progressive betting system because that that's something that can help you maximize your, your, your gains. If Because when, when you're on, because with blackjack, it tends to go in streaks. So when you're on a winning streak, start increasing your bet, but only to a certain amount and then, and then start decreasing it because eventually your streaks will be up. Same thing on, on a losing streak. The, the interesting thing with, with um, the, the same is, is true with, with stocks and options, um, but the only difference is that, you know, counting cards, casinos will, will, will look down on that. Um, but anything, anything goes with, with, uh, with, with stocks and options. And so I think that there's a lot of interesting similarities between um, people that can consistently win in a casino by by just focusing on like the one percent where they can get a one percent advantage and same thing with, uh, with with trading stocks and options yeah that's a fantastic yeah. point that kind of brings me to something that you mentioned the other day you said you had an auto trading software or something like that i might as well loop that into here how does that work i'm guessing it kind of capitalizes on exactly what you just said mm -hmm. so so I started just as a hobby a few months ago because the, when the market started going down, I said, "Well, this is an interesting time to buy because I I I got out of the stock market completely in 2017, and I, I think I missed the, the later half of, of, of the bull run that year. Which which I, I I remember from 20 years ago thinking it's better to have made less than you could have than to have lost mm -hmm. because dur during the dot com bubble, like there were some days where it's like, oh, I shouldn't have sold, I could have." But you know, really getting myself in the mindset. Okay, it's better to have made less than you could have than, than to have lost. Like mm -hmm. to really, to really stay focused. And and so when the when the market started going down several months ago, I said, okay, well maybe it's time to to you know get back in and you're trying to think of a, of, a, of a trading strategy. And you know, initially I thought of well, I'll just buy companies that I know and things that are in short supply. Well, you know, that kept going down. And the one thing that's different now that compared to in the past is that I, I have a lot of big data tools and resources and servers and developers. And I, I have things that, that, you know, if I want to make an application to automate things, I, I have resources to execute on that. And, and so, um, you know, I, I first started doing a lot of back testing, which is basically simulating trades to, to identify different types of patterns. But what I was looking for is, is different in that, Similar to how you know, my company does a lot of business with CW as a channel partner, because we're we're focusing on on the types of deals that are you know otherwise too small for them to deliver directly, um, or or that they're not ready to do yet. Because with, with with the stock market, 
you're, you're not, if you're going head to head with, you know, the hedge funds and Citadel, like you're, you're going to lose. So you can't do what, what they're doing. And, and so when I look for strategies that would be too small to be worth their while, that, that they wouldn't do because it's, it's just not, it's not worth their time. And, and, um, and so through doing back testing to where it's, it's small trades at a 1% gain that the, the trade size is, is limited to what the bid size was, because if you, if, if you did trades that were larger, well, then that would move the market. So that's why it has to be small trades that, that a, a, a high frequency trading firm, they wouldn't, they couldn't be bothered to, to do. And so by, by, um, finding what was the, the best ratios for, for that, um, along with, um, having a, a, a an option strategy a, as a hedge, um, that that's been, that's been very interesting and it's been something that's been fun to, to iterate and, and very similar to, to with, you know, winning a blackjack at, at a casino and that, you know, I'm sure that a lot of people know, know someone that, you know, they can consistently win, but they're very boring to watch. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. they, they sit at the table for hours, yeah. they don't drink, they're focused at, like, well, the, the the thing with, with, with stock trading is similar, except that having an application that can just do it automatically. And and it's interesting that there's not more uh, trading applications that that are, are are available. So that's why we wrote one. And but I had I've had friends ask me if I'm you know going to um, you know, productize it, but I said, well. If it works the way that that I expected, well, I, I wouldn't need to. <laughs> that's, that's why I would also be suspicious of, mm-hmm. of of anyone that 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 is trying to sell it. Like, okay, well, why do they need money? Yeah, <laughs> if, that's a valid if, point. Mm-hmm. If you can well, basically print however much you, you want. Know, I, I used to I used to not look as highly on the financial services industry in the past because when you look at like what what value does it do other than just making money? And, and so that's where the businesses that I was involved with, um, you know, there's, there's a problem that we actually solve. There's, there's value that we, that we provided and looking at a trading application where like, okay, all it, all it does is, is it's just a toll booth and it just, it just makes money. But if, if I can use that to, to, to help people and, and uh, for, you know, increasing values of, of employees retirement accounts, uh, I, I think that that's, I think that that's interesting. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's something that that's that that's, that's fun to iterate. Yeah, amazing man. Yeah, just such a breadth of different topics and interests, and it's super fun. We, we, we've oh, been no, talking no. I, here for I, a long I, time. Well, insatiably curious and irrationally skepticism, and and uh, you know anything physics or or, or or psychology, human nature, history, technology. Um, you know, those are those are my my, my main areas that. Even though I dropped out of college after the first semester, I usually spend about three hours a day uh, learning uh, on something, mm-hmm. and so you know that adds up yeah. over time. Yeah, definitely. Sure Such a wide array of topics. This has just been um, like a master class almost. I mean, we went through so many things. Um, well, we didn't even talk about the universe being a simulation. We haven't talked about that. We haven't talked about your race car career either. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to throw that in. Um, <laughs> but I mean, we're, we're never, never again will I drive Sounds across like the country in a car without two. control. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I mean, it's been a tremendous experience. So, um, Jeff, I mean, if the audience wanted to reach out to you or, or one of your businesses, like what would be the best way for them to get in touch? 
I'd say uh, find me on LinkedIn. Okay. It's the best cool. way. So we'll get, we'll have the link prepared in the show notes for you. Yeah. Um, Jeff, um, can't thank you enough. We want to sincerely thank you for coming on the show and giving us a glimpse of your life and businesses, plural. Um, and to everyone else out there chasing freedom, freedom's acquired one action at a time. And if you do nothing else, just write down one action that you got from today and make sure to implement that in the next seven days and, and share it with somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode and we will catch you on the next one. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 